Hello and welcome to the Q York podcast. It's great to have you with us today and we hope that as you listen, you'll be inspired as we continue on our shared quest together. This podcast is entirely free and yet it's not cheap to put together and wouldn't be possible without the generosity of our supporters. So if you consider yourself a supporter of Q, then please head to qyork.co.uk and hit donate to show your support today because there really is no Q without you. Thank you and enjoy today's message. All right, let's, uh, let's get into this. Please remember to keep uh, Barbara in your thoughts and prayers. Um, she improving in some ways, but the, the worst thing is, you know, she'd move around the corner here to be near the church and uh, it looks like she's not going to be able to go back there, so... We'll have to be in nursing care. So it's, you know, it's not an age at which you want that kind of hassle and stress. So keep her in your prayers. And if there's anything we can do to help her along, we will do that. Um, okay, I want to pick up this week. Um, again, I'll try not to over-labour the, the point. We'll stop where we stop. I think there'll be more to say on this because um, I don't think what we're dealing with here is just a message. I actually think it's part of... Uh, what I said to you the other day that, um, you know, to reconstruct after deconstruction simply means you recreate the same problem you had in the beginning because it's all about structures. This was our structure and this is now our structure. Uh, so I said my, my goal and, um, and approach is that, that uh, what we are engaging in is repurposing. What are the things that really matter to us? And um, how do we allow them to drive us forward with what it is that we have learned and then the structure that we put around that? So this situation that we, um, we uh, opened up last week was the, was the whole thought of going beyond Jesus. That um, there is some confusion in that when we see Jesus and we see Christ, I know most people are not as thick as this, but but the the outworked mental thought process can be this engaging that like almost like Christ is Jesus' second name. So its only significance is just really, you know, giving Jesus a location in terms of is is Jesus Christ. So I mentioned to you last week that we have the term Jesus, we have the term Christ, we have the term Jesus Christ, we have the term Christ Jesus, and all these different variations um, that can sometimes confuse us as to what, what is that that is in there. Now, from, a, from a, a purist view, some people would say that Christ is the equivalent of Messiah, and so Christ, Christus in the Greek, Christus anointed um, means the Messiah would be anointed, and so so Christ means nothing more than that Jesus is the Messiah. Now, um, I understand the reasoning behind that, but I would say it's a very flimsy explanation of the reality of Christ and the use of Christ when you begin to look at um, what the Bible itself and what I believe God himself is saying about who the Christ is and what the Christ is. So, I'm going to give a little bit of a summary. Some of you weren't here last week. Hopefully you got to hear online, but, but I need to summarise to give me the, the base from which we can move tonight so that we're on the same page. So we saw last week that there is a universal transcendent reality of Christ 
apart from Jesus. So I could argue the case that Christ has always been, but Jesus hasn't. But I could also argue that Jesus was always in Christ. But actually Jesus is the physical manifestation of the Word incarnate or of the Christ Spirit in the earth and that Jesus only came into being 2,000 years ago when he was born of the Virgin Mary and you will call his name Jesus. And the name Jesus means he who saves so it makes a lot of sense that he would be called he who saves because he had come in to do that. Now, one fascinating thing as I was uh, reading and studying and preparing today is it's funny how you read things all your life and miss them. Um, you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Is worth thinking about because his people were the Jews, Israel, and their sins were whatever we make their sins to be. So, so you already have um, uh, things like that that say that there is a much more universal perspective to the Christ and that Jesus in some degree was tribalised and localised for the reason, I mean, you know, Chris and I have talked about this a lot and I say, well, you know, whether we, whether we like the fact that the gospel came through the Jews is, is irrelevant because everything has to come from somewhere through something and it just happened to be that the Jewish people were the source by which we understood this. Um, so, so there is definitely a case to be made for, for Christ apart from Jesus. Now you say, but was Jesus the Christ? Yes, he was. Was Christ... Uh, manifest in Jesus yes he was but Christ was more than just that now we'll again we'll fill that we're going to build this as we go um, some more this week now now Paul endorses this in many ways um, so this is not uh, this is not outside of scripture Paul actually endorses this in lots of ways his propositions prove that Christ did not emerge on the scene with the birth of Jesus so if Christ was just Jesus, then Christ would have appeared when Jesus appeared, but Paul makes it clear he didn't. Let me, I'm going to use a lot more scripture tonight than normal, but uh, it will just help you to get a grasp on this. And if you're wanting to read some things to help you, read the first three chapters of Colossians particularly. <clears throat> Here's what Colossians 1 verse 17 says about the Christ. He is, and, and I appreciate we use the term he, I am not being misogynistic or, or you know, um, uh, anti-feminist, uh, anti-feminine or anti-feminist. Um, it just happens to be this as the terminology, so leave me alone. Um, he is before all things, okay? So where's his origination? The Christ, he is before all things, so before anything was a thing, he was, right? And everything that we understand as humanity is a thing. And therefore, he must be before anything that was a thing. So if you know anything about Scripture, for example, John's writings in his first chapter of the Gospel that says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, without him nothing was made that has been made, you can see how the Word and Christ and creation are all part of this same primordial something or other 
that brings things into being. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For, uh, and then I'll jump back to verse 16, okay? So I've read 16, now I'm jumping back to 16. For by him all things were created. Who? By Christ. By him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. So, so there's a very important role here of the Christ. If everything was created by him and for him, it makes sense that we try to dissect this understanding of what it means to, to understand or, or, or embrace or receive or be in the Christ. Let me give you one other that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 1. He says this, and this is a little bit of revision, for I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our forefathers were all under the cloud and that they all passed through the sea. So that's the Hebrew people, the children of Israel coming out of Egypt. They were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink. Listen to this. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. So Christ was with the children of Israel in the desert 1,500 years before Jesus ever appeared on the scene. He was existent, not as a physical being, but actually as symbolically as a rock from which water came, and they drank from the rock, but they knew that the water that they were drinking was the water of life. So Christ was accompanying them back then before Jesus. Do you see how there's a distinction between Jesus and Christ, although Jesus was the Christ? Do you get it? Okay. Now, the Jews confused the Christ, who is universally transcendent, with the tribal Messiah. And that's where your problems start. He's our Messiah. The truth is, you could argue, yes, he was their Messiah, but he was more than Messiah. And it was quite legitimate for them to claim him and embrace him, but not as a tribal Messiah. Because he was never the Messiah to the Jews, he was the Christ manifesting in Jesus for the world. But they tribalized him. So, so the Jews confused Christ who's universally transcendent with a tribal Messiah, just like they confused the I am. Remember we talked about when, when God appeared to Moses and Moses said, who shall I say sent me? What's your name? And he said, I am, which of course is not a name. And Christ is not a name. I am is a description of the nature the essence, the being of the divine, not a name for the divine, in the same way that Christ is a description of the essence, the nature, and the being of the divine, not a name for the divine. So they made it tribal unto some rather than always unto all, and finished up with a religion rather than a movement. So the truth is there should be no such a thing as the Jewish religion, and in essence, there should be no such a thing as the Jesus religion. Now, we'll clarify that a little bit because both of those, both the Jesus religion that we call Christianity and the Jewish religion are both tribal unto some. The moment you have ins and outs and haves and have-nots, 
and chosen and not chosen, it's tribal and to some, rather than being, rather than being always and to all. Now, I'm going to show you how the Christ changes that mentality and affirms our decision to change that mentality. So there's always been a seeking throughout history to constrain, restrain, hijack and tribalize the revelation of the one who transcends all things. Christianity has been no different and Christianity sadly has been a great endorser of that process of constraining, restraining and hijacking and tribalizing the revelation that should be transcendent. Now, We've unduly focused people on Jesus and not on Christ. Now, I've done that myself. My focus of my ministry was all about bring people to Jesus. But if Jesus is the one who saves, that's that's only where you bring them to. The one who saves. So we found ourselves in a perpetual motion of having to keep right with God through the one who saves because the one who saves never really saved us. He only saved us so we had to be more holy and more righteous and do less naughty stuff and do more good stuff and pray more and fast more and all that stuff and no more Bible. So actually what were we saved? We weren't truly saved, liberated. We actually had been saved into a religion that stopped at Jesus. So if you stop at the one who saves, you're always needing saving. So you have lots of appeal lines and lots of places for repentance because you're always needing saving. Now, now um, I now believe what he did worked and when he said it's finished, it's finished and that changed the whole ballgame forever for all of us. And uh, a lot of us have wasted a lot of energy um, because we felt that somehow we had to change how God sees, see, uh, how we see, how God sees us, rather than embracing uh, and changing how how we see God and understand His His grace. So, so I used this for you last week. This is a great thing to remember. Note, it's Christianity, not Jesusianity. So we have called something Christianity that's actually Jesusianity because it's focused on Jesus, stops at Jesus and there's no understanding about the transcendent reality of the fullness of the Christ and where his role is beyond and above and outside of the role of just Jesus. Now, this is not anti-Jesus. I believe Jesus was the Son of God, born of a virgin. I believe that he was the Word made incarnate, human flesh, so we could see the glory of the Father. I absolutely believe that. I believe that what he did on the cross worked and was powerful and successful, but that was all part of giving us a revelation of of the Christ, not just of himself. He was trying to bring us into the Christ, okay? So, so you know, in essence, what we should have really called most of what we have done is Jesusianity. And most of what's out there should be called Jesusianity because, because it's not really focused. When do you understand who the Christ is and who we should be because of the Christ, we actually could get done under the Trade Descriptions Act for calling ourselves Christian rather than Jesusian. Or Jesuits. So last week we looked at two narratives whose events are separated by 1,500 years but are remarkably connected. 
Uh, one is the loose genealogical record, the other is the stages of the journey. And so we talked last week a little bit of how in Matthew chapter 1, it tells us there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile in Babylon and 14 from the exile to the Christ, which we worked out the math and said that's 42 generations in all, 14 plus 14 plus 14. But then we went through these names, which I'm not going to do um, tonight, but basically these are, these are lists of 14 to help you. So if you look at the lists of 14, actually there are two names in the end, the end um, list, which is Jesus and Christ. Now, these are the names that when you count them, you cannot make 42 generations without this anomaly occurring, which is that the last two names, 41 and 42, are Jesus and Christ. Well, you would say, but hang on a minute, Jesus and Christ are the same thing, but not according to Matthew. According to Matthew, Jesus and Christ are two different generations. Now, I could argue, if we had time to, to talk about this whole thing, that Jesus was the end of the last of this generation of humanity that was without a revelation fully of the divine and that Christ was the beginning of a new generation of revelation. Now, also in a book like the Bible where generations are significant and generations are mentioned a lot, this is actually the last generation mentioned in Scripture, this generation 42, this 42nd generation. And that 42nd generation is not the generation of Jesus, it's the generation of Christ. So there would be this pressure to say, hang on a minute, this is a little confusing, but do we have two generations in one man? Is this one person, this persona, this manifestation the Word made flesh, is it actually dealing with two things? Is it, is it actually completing something old and releasing something new? Is it trying to move us from our present experience to something beyond and outside of ourselves and beyond and outside of just the physical realm of made flesh? Anthropomorphic would be another good word, an anthropomorphic experience, just the physical made flesh. So we saw that there were 41 generations to Jesus, 42 to Christ. And then we looked at another list, which is 1,500 years earlier, in Numbers 33, which is a record of all the camps that the children of Israel set up and stayed at on their way from Egypt to the promised land, or the land of promise, as I prefer to call it. So the land that to them physically was Canaan. And so in Numbers 33, in the same way that we have all these names listed in Matthew chapter 1, it lists all the camps. And if you count all the camps, it says, and they camped at, and they camped at. It's interesting because you count three lists, again, each one has 14 in, except the last one, which the plains of Moab, which is the ground opposite Jericho. Okay, remember the story of Jericho, which was the first place the children of Israel coming into. It's across the River Jordan. It's in the land of their inheritance. This gives us 41 camps to the plains of Moab. Now, here's the interesting thing. 
41 camps to the plains of Moab, which are on the banks of the River Jordan. 41 names to Jesus. And the question is, when did Jesus become the Christ? And the answer is, Jesus became the Christ when he was baptised in the River Jordan. When the heavens opened and the Spirit came upon him in the form of a dove, and the voice said, you're my son, I love you, I'm pleased with you. Now, the Spirit coming on someone is the term to anoint, to be anointed, to Christos someone. So he became the Christos. Now, this is all symbolic, and this is all pictures, but what it's saying is that, that in the same way that it says about the birth of Jesus. It says he was born Jesus in Matthew 1, but called Christ. Born Jesus, but called Christ, which suggests he was not called Christ from the beginning. He was born Jesus and called Jesus. But something happened, and a transition took place, and he became someone else. Even though it was Jesus, he became the Christ. Okay, So here's my point on that that when you look at these two sets of lists, there are two commonalities in, in the accounts. One is that they match up numerically perfectly, that 41 camps brings us to the banks of the River Jordan, 41 names brings us to Jesus who was baptised in the River Jordan. So the first one is that they match up numerically perfectly. The second one is that they both finish up at the River Jordan. And beyond the Jordan is a transition that changes everything. So I want to talk from the symbolism of the Old Testament a little bit of how beyond the Jordan changed everything. In the same way with Jesus, beyond the Jordan changed everything. So, so the critical link then in all of this is the willingness to transition. The Jordan River, therefore, symbolises a place of important transition and the challenges that arise from it. And if we're going to leave the 41st camp and become all we are supposed to be, we have to make the transition. The focus in Christianity has been on separation from God, which does not exist, rather than separation from who we are supposed to be, which does exist. So when you stop at Jesus, your focus is on the wrong thing. The focus says we're separated from God and unless Jesus makes God okay with us, we will forever be separated from God, which suggests that God is the problem, that he can't get over himself, that he's so angry with humanity, so, 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 so bitterly full of wrath that he can't possibly let that wrath be overcome. He can't just forgive he has to use violence to get all his anger out so then he can say, I feel okay now, I'll let you off. Now, when you put it that way, I don't know if you're like me, but it's like, that doesn't make sense that that would be how a loving God, the creator of all things, who has been gracious towards us, could possibly have figured this out. Because by that equation, God is the problem and God sacrifices Jesus in order that he might solve his own problem, not our problem. His is the problem of anger. And so you've got this crazy thing that God has to make away by sending his own son in order to stop himself being so angry that he annihilates the human race. See, see how that doesn't 
But if you stop at Jesus, I can put a really good story, which I absolutely loved and preached for years, of how when we come to Jesus, of course, you know, the wrath of God is satisfied. It's much easier to grasp because of our humanity than it is a God who says, you know, all this stuff, but I forgive you. I don't, I don't need you to ask me into your life. I want you, I'm asking you into my life. <laughs> Please come into my life. So, so these are the discrepancies we find. But here's where, when you understand that, you begin to see the need for the Christ beyond Jesus. And what then does he bring us into? And how is that paralleled by these 41 camps and then the 42nd camp was the other side of the Jordan, which was the land of promise? So, so the issue in life is not what or who we were born. The issue in life is what and who we become. And the Jordan symbolises that barrier in our lives that separates us from who we are supposed to become. So this is not about the Jordan separates us, the Jordan's like our sin that separates us from God and separates us from heaven and all that nonsense that was sung about crossing over Jordan was going into heaven, which was utter, I mean, you know, I said it on Sunday about, you know, Einstein saying there are two things infinite. Um, One is the universe and the other is human use stupidity and I'm not sure about the universe. You know, we we were raised, Chris and I, some of you were raised on songs about crossing over Jordan to the fair land. Well, that was stupid anyway, because if you read the story and took five minutes to read it, you find there were all kinds of enemies that they made in the land, all kinds of fighting going on, and they actually got chucked out. They actually got taken away into other lands, so you think that was stupid, wasn't it? But in the emotion of the moment, it all sounded wonderful. Oh, we've struggled in our desert, but we're going across the Jordan into heaven. No, we're not going into heaven's land. This is about symbolism and picture about who we were supposed to be, transitioning to become who we were supposed to be. So this is where I want to pick up the story tonight and just put a few more pieces um, into the puzzle and, and see where we get to. So, so, so the Apostle Paul proposes that, that we see the journey of the children of Israel from bondage to freedom as an example. Um, I, many would argue that the historicity of the children of Israel in Egypt, leaving Egypt and the journeys in the desert are difficult to prove Um, archaeologically and historically. Um, Again, you know, the way things were written in those days, we don't know. Some people would say they were, you know, just more of a Bedouin tribe and whatever. I've told you before, I I don't get my knickers in a twist over that anymore because the important thing is not how accurate the detail was. The important thing is what is this saying? If I, if, I was, if I was a God speaking to you, I would be more interested that I could convey to you what I wanted to say than, than factual, historic accuracy. So, for example, some of Jesus' stories were true. His parables weren't. But he told parables. The story of, this, of, of, of the Good Samaritan is not a real story. It's a parable. 
But, but it conveys in the story what he needs to say. The, the, the story of the sons that we know as the prodigal is not a real story. But from that, we can define and denote what is the character and personality and attitude of, of, of the Father in heaven. How does he respond to those who just want to get the money and go do their thing? How does he respond to those who are so flipping religious that they're a pain in the backside? It's not a true story, but it tells us what we need to know. So I approach much more Old Testament scripture saying the most important thing was not historical accuracy. The most important thing is, does this get the message through? So when you realize that 1,500 years apart, we have this amazing thing of 41 camps from bondage to the Jordan, from the beginning of their life of freedom to the Jordan, 41 generations to Jesus arriving at the Jordan to become the Christ. The Christ was the who you are becoming. The Canaan experience, the land of promise, was supposed to be who you are becoming, but you got to cross a river to get there. you got to make a transition to get there. You understand that this is rich with, with symbolism. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, this is what Paul says, These things happen to them as examples. And were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. So I'm going to use this as example, okay? So if we take this back to the first camp, the children of Israel coming out of Egypt, and nothing within there is our subject matter, so I'm not even going to attempt to, to touch on it. But we get the children of Israel leave Egypt, uh, go through the Red Sea, which is a type of a baptism, and the journey in the desert. And two years later, they arrive at the very same place that was on our list, on the plains of Moab, opposite Jericho, and at the River Jordan. And... Um, in that story of the crossing, you have Moses decides that he will, he will choose the, the notable, the recognized, and the great. And so he picks, he picks uh, um, 12 spies, but those 12 spies are all celebrities. They're all, I'll put it in, I'll put it in, in modern terms, they're all megachurch pastors. They've all got half a million to a million followers on Facebook. They're all popular conference speakers, okay? Tribal leaders. They were, they were the somebodies. And, and Moses, Moses says, okay, I want you to go and spy out the land and, and, and tell us what it's like and come back and report. So these guys came back and they came back saying three basic things. The giants are too big. The enemies are too numerous, and the cities are too strong. So we shouldn't do it. And only two of the 12 spies came back saying, if we're supposed to do it, let's do it. Um, and so, of course, the problem is the 10 convinced the nation, because obviously 10 must be better than two. And, uh, and so they convinced the people of Israel that it was a bad idea. Now... Now, there are several problems with that. Number one, Moses lacked the confidence to say, we're going to do this, let's just get on and do it. And so 
he did something that we've tried to avoid for many, many years. He says, let's have a committee. Let's give everybody a say. Let's have an AGM. Let's have a conversation. Well, you will not find one incident in the Bible, and I would say you'll struggle to find many incidents in life, where the majority decision is the right decision. It might be the supported decision, but, you know, you had all of Joseph's brothers turned against him. They voted, they voted, uh, you know, every other brother, he's, he's not it, we don't like him, get rid of him. He was the one who would save them, they didn't vote for him. David was the youngest of his family, and yet David was the one who was able to carry the thing forward, but they would not have put him forward. And so in this instance as well, I could, could give you many more. Um, this, this was, Moses set himself up for a fail because he didn't trust what was going on within him and what was the word and what was the momentum. And so rather than saying, tell us how to do this, he said, tell us if we can do this. And they said, no, we can't. And usually if the question is, do you think we can, there'll be more voices say no than say yes, especially when it looks pretty impossible or there's a paradox associated with it that says this doesn't make sense. So, so Moses, Moses does this, and, and, and the consequence was that they spent another 38 years wandering around the desert. Now, he said, did they really? Is this true? I don't know. What I do know is that if we don't approach the point of transition with an intent and determination to make it, we'll finish up walking around in circles for a generation. And my view, with all my years in ministry, would be that whenever the church comes to the point of a revelation that it could begin to grasp the truth of the Christ and all that that happens, it goes to committee... And you've even now got people, well, you know, the, in the Nicene Creed it says, listen, the flipping Nicene Creed, wonderful document, beautiful, but it was done in the 350s. We're now in the 2000s. It was done in the 350s. Well, that's orthodoxy. Now, that was their conclusion then, and I could give you a lot of reasons why coming to those conclusions was... Was, was an issue, and even, even in the context we've talked about scriptures, you know, the Catholics say the apocryphal books are in, the Protestants say the apocryphal books are out, you know, so which is the inspired divine? So, so the point I'm trying to make to you here is that, is that we all will come to a point where we have to make decisions, but those decisions can't be made just by observing external factors, they have to be made by an inner truth and that if we don't make the transition, you will walk round in circles in your Christianity, your Jesusianity, your spirituality. You will walk round in circles. You'll always be going somewhere but never arriving anywhere. You'll tread lots of ground but never possess a single foot of it. And ultimately will not possess what it was you're supposed to possess, which is really more about who you were than it was about what you had. So, so that's what we can learn from, from, from that. Now, now, 38 years later, along comes this guy, Joshua, which, in, interestingly enough, Joshua and Jesus are the same name. Yeshua, Joshua, Yeshua, he who saves. And... Uh, 
But the good thing about Joshua, Yeshua, is, is, is that he wanted to lead them beyond. <laughs> he, he was not so concerned that he continued to be the icon of everything. He was more concerned that he would help them get over to where they were supposed to be and then let them get on with what it was that they were supposed to go after and who they were supposed to, to be. So, so when Joshua comes along, after we've walked around in circles for 38 years... Uh, it's interesting because he also sends spies into the land, but this time he sends two spies. And uh, in Moses' account, all the 12 spies were named because there were celebrities. In Joshua's account, you, don't, you still don't know who those two spies were. Um, they were just Q without U's, that's no sound, <laughs> right? There, there were two people... I have no doubt of, of, of ability and of skill, but, but chosen for a very specific reason. And the reason Joshua chose them was this, because he knew he could send them and not say, tell me if we can do this. He wanted to say, tell me how we can do this. We're doing this. That's not even a question. And there's things we've decided when we came to Q, we're doing this. It's not a question. We are doing it. But we need the kind of spies who are able to say, well, I can help you into how we do this, not whether we do it. So these two spies went in. Now, I, I love the story because they, they went across to, to Jericho and the only person that they could befriend was a Canaanite, lying, cheating prostitute. Now, so they're lying and cheating because she lied to the authorities about hiding them. She cheated in the way that she hid them from the authorities. And she was a prostitute. And so while they were in Jericho, they, they based their ministry in a brothel with a prostitute. And that became the basis for their making a transition into the story of becoming who they were supposed to be. Now, I find it fascinating that Jesus said to the religious people, prostitutes and tax collectors are entering the kingdom ahead of you. In other words, this truth of the Christ tends to find more space in the people who you would say are alienated or disenfranchised than it does with the people who think that they have something and know something. So the truth is this transition is most uncomfortable to anybody who wants to hold on to any vestige of religious thinking. And believe me, in that 38 years, even then, the children of Israel have become very religious in the desert. But they got the breakthrough through a, a prostitute. So, so they then get to the point where they have to make the transition, and you know, without going into the very minute little details of this, they are told. Pete, Pete mentioned this last week to me afterwards. It was interesting. They were told that the priest should pick up the ark, which was a symbolic of of the presence, the divine presence, the being of God. And that they were to carry that and walk into the River Jordan. And that it was in the process of walking into the river that the waters would stop. So, so the truth is the priest then picked up the ark which symbolised 
the presence, the being with them. I am with them. And they walked into the River Jordan. Now, it says the feet, the water came up to their ankles. So, so the miracle wasn't, you know, just pray and fast and speak and the waters will stop. In fact, the waters were still flowing until those who were priests, representatives, were willing to go in and get their feet wet. Now, we have an interesting negative terminology when we talk about, oh, it was going to happen, I was going to buy it, we were going to do it, but then I got wet feet. Which means you stepped into the flow and then realised this has not stopped yet, and so you gave up. And the truth is this transition at the Jordan has a point at which you get wet feet before anything changes because you have to be willing to commit yourself to the fullness of the transition. Now, as they began to walk into the water, it says that the flow of the water was stopped, which I could argue had already happened before they ever set foot in, but you couldn't see what was happening out of view because the water was being stopped, the Bible says, upstream at a place called Adam, which, again, you know, when you're trying to tie together, the important thing is what is the story saying? The flow of this river was stopped at a place called Adam. In other words, everything that flows from Adam, the human, the human thing, the human way of seeing things, the human way of being, in, in, not in relationship and acceptance of our oneness with God, had to be stopped in order for the transition to be made fully. It's interesting also that, that uh, Adam, this place, was was in a, in a region called called a city a, a region called Zarathan and Zarathan means place of oppression so everything that was flowing was flowing from a place of oppression because it was separating them from who they were supposed to be so they went into the waters the water stopped flowing from up there but the word was that they had to stay in in the basically in the river when the water stopped flowing so, we've now got a dry riverbed. They had to stay there until all the people had passed across. So there was a point at which those who were willing to carry the reality and the truth of the transition had to stand in the place of danger that was the riverbed until everybody was able to get across. Some people had to stand there because there's a lot of people got a transition. And, and I see a parallel with us that, you know, we have to walk, we've had to walk into a place of transition and some of us have got to stay in there and stand in there and hold our ground until we can make space for people at whatever speed they go to actually come across to the other side of the Jordan, which for them was a place of promise, a place of new existence. For us, it's coming into a full understanding of what it means to be of Christ and in Christ. So the other thing that happened then, and then I'll just tie this back to, to where we're going. The other thing was that Joshua instructed the, the tribal leaders in this time not to give their opinion, but he said, you guys, I want you to stay here with the priests in the middle and I want each of you to find a rock where the priests are stood and I want you to carry that rock out of here and we're going to build, we're going to build a, a memorial on the other side so that when people say, what are these rocks? 
He said, then you'll tell them, here's the story. You know, this is how we got here. It really took us, somebody had to be willing to challenge the river that was separating us so we could all make a transition. And this is the testimony of how we made it. There was a miracle. Now, there'll be some people 10 years down the track who will have no idea what some of us have been through to get to where it is we're going. So we have to carry a testimony. We have to remember this thing and carry a testimony with us. And the testimony says this was in the water, this was a rock, this was a hard place, but we brought it out because, look, we made it through. And now here's the story of where God has, has brought us to. So that, that's just a brief summary. You know, this is all chronicling in picture form what we need to do to make the journey into the full revelation of the Christ. Now, you will never make the journey from Jesus to the Christ until you become intimately familiar with the word all. If you don't become intimately familiar with the word all, you will never make the transition into the Christ. Now, seeing as you're looking at me in that tone of voice, I will unfold it for you. See, all is the word that is inseparable from the person, the being of the one called Christ. Now watch this, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. This is the Christ. The firstborn over all creation. Not some, not Israelites, not white middle-class Christians, firstborn over all creation. For by him, him, all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him. So everything that is a thing was created by who? All things were created by him. And who were they created for? Him. He is before all things. And in him, all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything, which is another way of saying all things, he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven by making peace through the blood shed on the cross so I think you can see all is a very important word in the context of Christ some of it because it brings me in others because for my sake it brings you in and for everyone's sake it brings them in so, Colossians 2, verse 9. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Now, of course, that's also transitioning to when the Christ was also Jesus, Jesus the Christ. And you have been given fullness in Christ. Now, I could take that fullness to say you have been given allness 
Other parts of the Bible call it all things in Christ. So what do we have in Christ given to us? All things, fullness. So, so somehow now we are being connected not just with Jesus the Saviour, we are being connected with the divine being force existence that predates all things but made all things and is in all things and we have in our physical reality a connection with that that transitioning to the Christ allows us to fully understand what it is that is in us and that we are in. Who is the head of every power and authority. Um, Colossians 2 verse 2. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches, or all riches, of complete understanding. So within this thing of the Christ as well, there is a, an understanding that flows. In order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are in the Christ. So when we transition from Jesus to the Christ, we are being given access to all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, now you might say, well, are you fully living in that? Anth? No, not totally, but, but I've tasted it, I've glimpsed it, I've felt it, I know that it's there. So, let's go out of Colossians to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ... All will be made alive. Now, you have to be careful in some of the translations of the Bible because all will be made alive sounds feasible, but the will be is actually not there. It says in Adam, all die, so in Christ, all made alive. We put the will be in because we don't move from Jesus to the Christ, and therefore we still have separation and decide that you have to do something in order for him to be something to you. When Paul is saying he is what he is to you, recognize it, get a hold of it, because all of that is to fill all of you so that all of you is lost in all of that, so that the all that is Christ becomes the all that is you. Romans 5. Consequently, uh, 5 verse 18. Consequently, just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all men. So also the result of one act of righteousness was justification, justification that brings life for all men. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many, we could call that all, were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many, all, Again, the will be shouldn't be there because it's not in the original text. Made righteous. So we've got this all thing going on. Okay? So according to Paul, the great mystery revealed to humanity is not the virgin birth. Clever as that is, and anybody would think it to be. It's not the resurrection. That's not the mystery. It's not the creation. That's not the mystery. It's not even the crucifixion. That's not the mystery, according to Paul, that is revealed to humanity. The mystery, according to Paul, that is revealed to humanity 
is Christ in you. When did God tell us in John chapter 1 we visibly see and experience the full glory of the divine being? It says, when the word becomes flesh, and the word became flesh, and we saw the glory of the Father. When the word became flesh, when the Christ was in Jesus. So let me read you the verse that that comes from. Colossians chapter 1, verse 25. I have become its servant by the commission of God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations. Now, it doesn't mean God hid it, but it meant it was kept hidden. How many things do you have to look for in your house that you didn't hide? So I wouldn't say to you what was kept hidden, but it has been kept hidden because you don't know where it is. And so this is the context of this, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations but is now disclosed to the saints, to them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is the whole mystery of the Christ, is Christ in you. It's not about some strange being thing, floaty, whatever. The mystery of it all is Christ in you, in all things, before all things, through all things, Christ in me, Now, me in Christ now, and as I told you last week, you cannot be Jesus because there was only one Jesus. He was born 2,000 years ago, he lived for 33 and a half years and he died and Jesus was gone. But you can be Christ because Jesus was who he was because of the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. And you can be who you are because of the mystery of Christ in you, the hope of glory. But if we understand it's this process of who we have become, who we become, it's the transition to embrace and receive this and begin to walk in this, then something changes in the expression of who we are in our lives. Colossians 2 verse 2, I'm nearly, I'm nearly done. Uh, At the end of Colossians 2, verse 2, I'll just read the last word because it says, Christ, and verse 3, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Christ in me brings into me the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And here's what it says, Colossians 3, verse 11. Here there is no Greek, no Jew. You could say no English, no Mexican, No Chinese, no Russian, no Egyptian. You know, this this was just the... It's denoting the the difference that there there is no Greek or Jew, no circumcised or uncircumcised. So, So your religion, whatever that religion, circumcised or uncircumcised, counts for absolutely nothing. Because the argument here was... Jew or Gentile. See, it's the narrow-mindedness of Jewish thinking. Jew or Gentile. You know, uh, uh, Greek or Jew, Jew or Gentile. When actually we have to think wider, that was spoken to the world of that moment and say, this means your religion's not going to benefit you. Barbarian, Scythian, these were different tribal groups, nationalities, slave or free. 
But Christ is all and is in all. We have to start seeing the world saturated by Christ. Soaked in Christ. Now you say, well, what about suffering and what about all those things? Yet they exist because in our humanity, we move ourselves away from the saturating soaking of existence in the Christ. I don't know how we manage it. You know, silly little examples might be, I can go out on this wet and rainy day with an umbrella and never get saturated by the rain because I've got my jolly umbrella up. So I can avoid, I can hide away in my religious house and try to avoid the saturation. It seems that some things mitigate against the fullness of our saturation. And one of the worst things for doing that is our jolly religious thinking and our Jesusianity that doesn't allow us to let ourselves be saturated by the fullness of the one who we said, the word you attach to Christ is all in all, through all, by all, made all, everything exists in him, all things exist by him, through him, live and have their being, all things. Now you say, I don't understand all that. Well, the way to understand it better is to appreciate that in him is hidden the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So the more I saturate in Christ, the more when I see my world, the more I can embrace and understand and get context in what is going on so that the fullness of the Christ in me can be revealed. If we don't have that, what we do is we, we, we retreat to our religious turrets and shoot our arrows out of the windows that all our enemies are not one of us, they're not part of us, they're not in our tribe, they don't belong. And we preserve our religious environment, but while missing the fullness of the wonder of the Christ, of trying to be all and to bring all and to express all and to allow the fullness of that wisdom to bring change in our world. I have neighbours who I believe are more expressions of the Christ than most Jesus followers. And I would say in some ways they may not yet have found Jesus in the way we found Jesus, but they found the Christ. And in the allness of the Christ, there is the allness that flows through them that I believe is covered by grace because once we limit it to this small-minded thinking, we say, unless you prayed this prayer in this way with these words and done this repentance, then this God who is all-loving can't forgive you because you didn't tick the right boxes. But when we get the allness, we realise nothing wrong with those of us who came and prayed a sinner's prayer. Nothing wrong with that at all. Nothing wrong with those who just cried out and said, help me. Nothing wrong with a thief on a cross who says, remember me when you come into the kingdom. Nothing wrong with it. But once we bring that into tribal thinking, then there is no all. And then we can't think all, and then we can't be all, and we can't love all. And we can't receive all, and we can't appreciate all, because we didn't catch the Christ. So, let me finish up here for tonight, because we've said enough. I'm sure there's a lot more to say on this, but this will do for now. So in the words of Paul, 
Colossians 2 verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and church tradition and any other kind of tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. Okay? Verse 16, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Can you see how the fulfilment of all the nonsense that we felt was qualifying us and validating us and also excluding others so that we felt we could judge them He's now saying, eat and drink, festivals, new moon celebration, how often you're in church. I think it should be in every possible time the doors are open, but it's not going to make a apath a difference to how you're related and connected to life and the world through the Christ. Sabbath days, only shadows. The reality found in Christ, in Christ, right? Not in Bible, not in Scripture, not in the Ten Commandments, not in obeying the rules. The reality is found in Christ. If you want to find the reality of life, there's only one place to find the reality of life, and that's in Christ. And in Christ, it is transcendent of our small-mindedness, of the little compartmented tribal thing that we have invented, and it takes us right out into the fullness of all that God is, all that the divine is, all that his being is towards us. So, verse 18. Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you from the prize. In other words, don't let those religious zealots who are all about what they've seen and can see and don't let them, don't let them disqualify you for the prize. In other words, don't let them put you off what you're understanding about Christ. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. He's lost connection with the head from whom the whole body grows, supported and held together by its ligaments and sinews um, and grows as God causes it to grow. Verse 20, since you died with Christ to the basic principles of this world, so we didn't die in Christ to be all just dreadful sinners. It says you should have died. When you die in Christ, see our model of Jesus was we died with Jesus because we were such awful sinners and he died for sinners. So that was the whole thing. He talks about dying in Christ. If you died with Christ, what you died to was the basic principles of this world. And then he explains that. He says, so why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. All the rule things that we thought were the things that made us acceptable to God. He says, he says when you are crucified in Christ, you learn they are not the things that make you who you were always supposed to be. And I'll tell you what they did. They made us full of pride. They made us full of arrogance. They made us a separatist organisation because we could point to the ones who weren't doing what we did or as good as we did or didn't pray as long as we prayed or didn't know Jesus like we 
no Jesus, and you back into the whole Jesus is my boyfriend culture. You know, Jesus is my boyfriend, he's not your boyfriend. Why as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. These are all destined to perish with use. In other words, all little doings die and you'll die with them because they are based on human commands and teachings. Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship and their false humility and their harsh treatment of the body. We're doing all this and we're doing it for Jesus. We did it for Jesus. They're doing this for Jesus. But listen, he said, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. Or in other words, I'm going to change you one little bit in the context of inside. But the moment you get a revelation of the all that you are in Christ and the all that Christ is in the universe, then in that allness you realise that all of those things are not what make this work and you will settle into and rest back into being one with the Christ. What did he say is the mystery? It's the mystery Christ in you. That's where you start to get a hold of the hope of glory. So if this is true, then Christ is the sacred raw material which has existed from all eternity, who is in all things and by whom all things exist, and who is in you. Thing? Maybe that's why it's not. Male, female, he's in all things. I'm proud to be a, a thing in a universe of things, in the solar system of things, in an eternity outside of time of things that are all things. We are a thing and all things by whom all things exist and who is in you and you in him. Let me, let me just make this one last comment uh, and then we're done. One of my favourite challenging verses is in Joshua 3 verse 4 which is the thing that we were showing about you know, the illustrative process of, of transitioning. Um, and of course, the Jordan is the picture there with, with Joshua. Um, it's, it's recorded that Joshua said he was told by, by God, by an angel, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, three times. And this is why, this is the verse I love in Joshua 3, verse 4. Then you will know which way to go, since you have never been this way before. So the issue of transition is this, for me, for Chris, for the leaders, for the house, you will not know which way to go and we won't know which way to go by, by prior experience um, or, or by any measurement that we can make. It, it becomes this very individual journey that is about dynamic faith, not static belief that says you've not been this way before. That, and that's, that to some is the frightening part of it, but to others it's the exciting part of it. You've not been this way before. So the term I would use is we have no frame of reference for where we are going with this. But we're going anyway. Joshua's word was we have no frame of reference where we're going with this, but we're going anyway. Jesus' frame of reference 
According to Philippians 2, when he laid aside all his godliness and became human flesh and came in the form of Jesus, I've got no frame of reference to where this goes, but I'm going anyway. And when Paul got his revelation after being a persecutor, his words really were, I have no frame of reference to where this goes, but I'm going anyway. So if you want to know what the culture of this house is, if you want to know what it is that we're repurposing with, it's the truth of Christ, and we have no frame of reference where we're going, but we're going anyway. And invite you to come along with us on that journey as we seek to fully understand the Christ. Let me throw one appendix in here because I think it's important because some of you will be thinking jumps ahead and around. So if the children of Israel going into the land promised is the symbolism of, of our crossing the Jordan and entering into Christ, what's all that stuff about of killing enemies and destroying cities? And That's where I personally believe that the tribal thinking of a group of humans hijacked the truth and the principle, just like we in Christianity hijacked the truth and the principle. And we've done it in many ways. You know, what were the Crusades about? Oh, well, we're going to take Jerusalem back from the, you know, from the, the heathens, so we'll go kill them all. You know, that was us hijacking that. You know, let's use the cross. On with Christian soldiers marching us to war. And so a lot of what you read after that, don't confuse that and say, but I'm confused because then they were told to kill all these people and destroy all this. And how you see that work out, I would say, is more a reflection of their struggle to leave their own tribalism and their need for identity than it is the reality of them actually trying to find out who they were supposed to be. I think there could have been an alternative story. Just like the narrative of Genesis uh, 1 and 2, there could have been an alternative story. And I've said to you many times that, that the reason I haven't got a Bible here, the reason the Bible's that thick is it could have been, it could have been one page. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and he created it, and it was good. So all the other stuff is, is just reflecting, you know, the nonsense that we then introduce into the story. So, so, so they were released into that, then they superimposed on the story. I guess what I'm saying is, just like we read Paul's warnings, let's not superimpose upon to this revelation of the Christ... Uh, so much human thinking that we try to make it um, a, a religious enclave of belief. Let's understand this is this is a this is a uh, it's a relational becoming of oneness and being with all that the Christ is. That then we begin to live out from that. It needs no structure, but structure can be helpful. It needs no rules, but rules sometimes can be helpful. But when it's in the Christ, it will all flow from the heart of love and kindness. And we begin to live in the allness and in the all. So I'm done. I think we've said enough. And, uh, you know, we'll let you hang around and have a chat. And then uh, we'll no doubt add some more little thoughts and truths. If you, if you think it's a good idea. But have you got anything you would like to contribute? Okay. Okay, well, I'm gonna, we'll leave it there. If, as, as ever, if you've got any questions that arise from this, please, you know, put them down, jot them down, get into us, give us on a piece of paper, send us a text, whatever. 
and uh, and we'll we'll chew through some of those things. And I, I do believe this is a. I believe this is the right thing at the right time for now, and I think there's more to be said. I cannot. I do not claim to have all the understanding on this. I'm walking it through myself, but I'm trying to walk into that allness that's part of the Christ and the wisdom and the knowledge that comes from that. So be blessed. Thanks for being here. It's much appreciated and uh, hopefully we'll see you on Sunday. Good. Thanks for listening to another Q York podcast. If you've been inspired by what you've heard today, then why not email us at info at qyork.co.uk and let us know who you are and where you're listening from. We love that you're listening to us and we'd love to hear from you too. Did you know you can also watch all of the talks from Q on our YouTube channel? Just go to youtube.com forward slash Q Church York. We look forward to having you with us again soon. Until then, enjoy the quest.